Hi, it's Monday the 14th of June. I thought I'd try something a little bit different today and uh, let myself range over the day's stories generally on account of the fact that uh, I'm so angry about so many things I thought I'd give myself a bit more license. As you've probably seen, it looks as if the lockdown's not going to happen or the lockdown end is not going to happen. We're going to extend for another four weeks. Now, we're doing this without any evidence whatsoever that the hospitals are being overwhelmed or that there's any uh, basis that would have been uh, acceptable to folk 14 months ago. It wouldn't have passed muster what's being done right now at the start. You'll remember what we were told, which was that there were some people who were going to die if they caught COVID regardless. Uh, there are huge numbers of excess deaths every bad flu year. And therefore what we had to do was flatten the sombrero. We had to uh, avoid the hospitals being overwhelmed because people who would otherwise have been saved might then die. Okay, fair enough. Right. So what we're trying to do is have the same number of COVID infections over a longer period of time so that the hospitals don't get overwhelmed and therefore we don't have avoidable deaths. You'll remember we built all those uh, Nightingale hospitals and in Scotland a Louisa Jordan hospital because, of course, Florence Nightingale didn't sound Scottish enough. So we did all that and we marched them up to the top of the hill and then we marched them down again. The army built the hospitals. They weren't used. Um, and then we took them to pieces again because we knew they weren't going to be used. And despite the fact that we knew they weren't going to be used and know, it seems, that they aren't going to be used, we're still talking about delaying this uh, ending of lockdown in England. And of course, um, given that Nicola Sturgeon, for all her dislike of Boris Johnson, um, follows him like a faithful dog three steps behind or three days behind, we know that what doesn't happen in England will not happen in Scotland either. So we'll have the same inevitable delay um, in Scotland as well. More businesses will go to the wall. Neil Oliver, uh, the new... Uh, GB News guy, the former Coast guy, says this is humanity's biggest ever mistake, and I think he's right. Um, so we seem to have lost our mind. When we have a situation where Theresa May is standing up in the House of Commons, having a really um, well-structured and well-delivered rant at the government for four minutes um, over this um, policy, this creeping policy, this in, in, in some ways failure to have a policy that can be made to stick across ministers. Um, when Theresa May stands up, and makes that speech, you know that we've jumped the shark, that we've, we've crossed a line. So we're intent in keeping this going indefinitely, it seems, because, of course, as May points out, there will always be new variants. There will always be new infections. If we, if we allow ourselves to be taken over by what wasn't the mission at the start, there's a big thing in the military, which is mission focus, being clear about the aim. What are you trying to achieve here? If you're going into Afghanistan to defeat the Northern Alliance, great, go in, or rather to defeat the, 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 uh, the Taliban um, with the Northern Alliance um, to bring back something approaching stable, brutal, pointless, um, horrific uh, government that doesn't actually threaten the West, that's fine. If you want to create a modern liberal democracy in Afghanistan and you want to make that your aim at the start and you're worried about girls going to school, that's fine too. But just understand that one of those things costs $5 billion and one of them costs... $500 trillion. So decide what your goal is and then pursue that goal and try to maintain some mission focus. Because what we've got at the minute is an initial intention to flatten the sombrero, which has now become, let's minimise COVID deaths regardless of other deaths and regardless of the wider social consequences. Um, it doesn't seem to make any sense. 
And uh, when you hear scientists saying that there's all kinds of upsides to a delay in terms of deaths avoided, how many scientists aren't employed in the university or by the government? How many of them have lost a pound? We've now got us in a position where businesses are being destroyed and the few that remain will open up, start engaging in real economic activity, selling things to people who've got a choice as to whether to buy from that business or not. And those businesses are going to be taxed to pay off the debt interest and then finally the principal sum and all of the public debt that we've ran up over the last 14 months paying the wages of politicians and scientists who've borne no cost whatsoever. Is this whole approach something we would do again? Would we go about this again? Because if we wouldn't go about it again, then we can only be going about it this way this time because we think it can never happen again. The trouble is, they're saying that it will happen again. They're openly declaring, and we've got a former communist on the SAGE advisory group suggesting that maybe we should have these social distancing and mask wearing measures forever. And let's sit in our houses with our windows open because maybe the particles will have to blow out the window. Um, because our, our friends and family represent a, a lethal threat to us. They're talking about this being an endless problem, um, such viruses. And at the same time, it seems we've spent, according to the IMF, $28 trillion of lost output addressing the problem in the way that we went about it this time. So if we're not prepared to do this indefinitely, why are we doing it once? Because we seem to be saying it is going to be an indefinite problem, and yet we've chosen a strategy that costs $28 trillion. It doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. And it's not clear to me that even the people in charge think that it does make sense. It's just that they're reckoning that the senselessness that they've chosen is going to be less damaging to them personally, politically, than doing something that would be sensible. John Lee, the pathologist, 14 months ago said viruses mutate. And like anything else, they mutate to their advantage. So the virus that polaxes you will not spread because it polaxes you. You won't be out giving it to other folk. So what you'll expect to happen very quickly over time is that less lethal versions or less certainly polaxing versions of the virus will emerge because that's the one that allows you to walk about giving it to other folk. And that seems to be what's happening. And we're using the growth of this Delta virus from India, which seems more transmissible, which isn't resulting in more hospitalizations. We're using that as a justification for closing the UK for another four weeks. But of course, if you're looking to try and, as it were, immunise the population, the best vaccine has just been made in India. It's the one that spreads readily and doesn't actually draw people. Um, so what Lee said happened, would happen 14 months ago is happening. But we are responding to that using exactly the same tactic that we used 14 months ago, which seems to have done us no good whatsoever. We've got us into a kind of sunk cost fallacy where it would be impossible to admit that the correct way of going forward from now is to do something different because that implicitly would involve admitting that what we did 14 months ago was a result of panic, pandering to the mob, playing to the gallery, refusing to do what a politician should do and stand up to the scientists and make a balanced judgment. Because if we're going to say that scientists can simply decide, why do we have politicians? What is the point of having a political class if we're going to simply say, well, the scientists have advised us that lives will be saved if we shut for another four weeks? Because lives will be lost if we shut for another four weeks. We know that a smaller economy with less tax revenue, less public spending, fewer social workers, fewer nurses and doctors will kill more people. So some judgment has to be made by an elected politician accountable to the people as to what will produce most human happiness looking into an indefinite future. So we can't say that we bow to the scientists and we've accepted as gospel their judgment as to what lies in the, in, in the public interest because that's exactly why we elect politicians and hold them accountable at the end of four or five years. 
we've, we've, we've broken uh, the language, it seems. We've completely avoided uh, being clear in what we mean by things like, for example, cases. We've got us in a situation where we're talking about COVID cases now. What we mean is positive tests. We, we're looking at the latest figures um, and we're ignoring what they tell us. We've got something like yesterday, I checked, we've got something like 7,490 new cases. Cases. The trouble is, in the last 28 days, um, we've had uh, handfuls of people actually dying. Uh, two handfuls, eight, just under two handfuls. Eight people have died within 28 days of a positive test. So we've broken the language, we've bent it so far out of shape, it doesn't mean anything anymore. What is a case if it isn't actually somebody ending up in a hospital? I mean, all kinds of things will be happening in my gut flora right now, will be happening in my knees and my tendons as I age. But I'm not a case. I'm not, an, I'm not an orthopedic case until I'm actually in the hospital with a broken bone or something else needing done. A case, the word case has to mean something. It can't mean we gave somebody a test, cycled the, the results 30 or 40 times to isolate enough virus to produce a positive result, and we're saying that that's now a case. Um, it... it, 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 it causes exasperation to a degree inconsistent with long-term compliance with the law. If someone like me, if someone as small C conservative as me gets exasperated like this um, over government policy, you'd better understand that elsewhere in the community there are far less reasonable people becoming more and more angry to a degree inconsistent with easy government with a, a modicum of force and minimum measures to, to, to exact compliance. We are, uh, we're talking about a fallacy, actually, when I think about it. Remember Kahneman's book a few years ago, Thinking Fast and Slow? And Kahneman talked about how when we frame a problem, it affects the way that we think about it, and we're driven to frame it in certain ways. So, for example, if one person died in a town of a thousand uh, every year, you wouldn't think that the cause of their death was one that should cause you to shut the town for a year. One death in a town of a thousand wouldn't do it. But, of course, the UK is just under 70 million. Um, so that's 70,000. So what the, one way to think about the UK is that uh, you've got uh, 70,000 towns of 1,000 each. I think that's right, isn't it? 70,000, 70 million. So if for the sake of argument there was one death in each of those towns, that would be 70,000 deaths, which suddenly sounds like a lot. And, uh, and it might provide a pretext for shutting the UK. But of course, if you stop and think about it for a second, it doesn't. Um, it, uh, if, you wouldn't shut the, if you wouldn't shut your town for one death in a thousand people in a year, you shouldn't shut a country for 70,000 deaths um, if, the, if the country's got roughly 70 million people in it. And that's the judgment we make. I think it was back in 2015 with 58,000 excess deaths caused by a bad flu year and we didn't shut the UK. Nobody even suggested it. Nobody thought it was sane. Um, you'd have ended up uh, being questioned about how um, well you felt and who was the Prime Minister. Uh, and how old were you and what was your date of birth if you if you suggested that people would think particularly if you're over 60 people would think there was something amiss and yet for some reason we've uh, we've persisted with this and seem to be doubling down we seem to be actually suggesting that uh, uh, our new way of going on is is to become our, our habit custom and practice um conspiracy theorists who suggest this is all part of some grand global plan or reset and were uh, laughed at 14 months ago. I, I, I no longer, I, I don't believe them, but I no longer laugh at them. And that's a worrying turn.
Nisrun Malak uh, in The Guardian is suggesting that he and people like him should stop engaging with um, silly stories from the mail uh, and other similar outlets regarding supposed culture wars because he thinks that they are giving credibility to utter nonsense by doing so. And he makes some interesting points. He says that, um, you know, if you take a, a really nice part of uh, Manchester or a reasonably nice part like Didsbury, um, there's something wildly inconsistent with recommending it as a place to stay uh, one month and then running a story about how supposedly it's a um, Muslim uh, enclave um, where people shouldn't enter because it's, it's a no-go area. And of course that news story based on a, uh, a guy who's trying to make money by selling a book, uh, a, a, a professional controversialist um, trying to sell a book. Uh, and similarly, the, the Oxford story about the American kid who managed to persuade his uh, uh, lower common room fellows to remove a picture of the Queen. And then uh, having Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, respond to that uh, and suggest that the Queen should be respected, which of course, as Malik says, simply gives legs to the story and makes it seem as if these things are, are typical and meaningful, when of course, in actual fact, they're nothing more than uh, than made-up um, stories to pander to a particular readership. Not that I'm saying that's a bad thing. I mean, if you look at uh, someone like Stephen Daisley, he's brilliant at writing for an audience. So when he writes for the Mail um, or the New State, uh, or the, yeah, the... Uh, um, the spectator. If he, write, if he writes a piece, you can see that he's written it for the audience. He tailors his piece. Uh, and therefore, everything in the mail is designed to appeal, appeal to male readers. Um, people buy the paper that confirms them and their prejudices. Now, what Malik says is, of course, we, this, this spreads beyond particular readership and becomes a, a, a dominant narrative because people like him are invited to respond. Funnily enough, I was listening to um, a really good Radio 4 programme when uh, Edward Said and Said was saying that because he was the, the token uh, Palestinian, um, he was invited to comment on every single damn thing about the Middle East, uh, and in particular terrorism stories, uh, including uh, immediately after the Oklahoma bombing, bombing, which of course was Timothy McVeigh and uh, uh, therefore American and homegrown. But Said was uh, invited to comment on every single damn thing uh, based on the fact that uh, he was uh, the, 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 man from, the go-to man from the Middle East. And of course, it makes exactly his point uh, about Orientalism, uh, this idea that the uh, East of Suez is, is exotic and people are motivated by um, agendas and intentions that are not common to the Occident. Uh, and therefore, you can afford to make ridiculous generalizations and, uh, and essentially forget Hume's injunction that there's one human nature and it only varies by circumstances. So Malik makes an interesting point. What occurred to me, however, when I was reading his piece was that um, there is there is no one more guilty of writing to an audience and therefore causing the spread of indefensible beliefs beyond that audience than the Guardian itself. The Guardian newspaper um, is the uh, is the written uh, branch of the uh, the Channel Four News Empire, or vice versa. Channel Four News is the broadcast wing of the Guardian. But for Malik to complain about bad faith actors. Um, pushing uh, stories that don't make a lot of sense um, or are willfully uh, ignorant of basic facts that they should be informed by. Um, no one does that better than The Guardian. No one has done it for longer. Um, the Guardian has, uh, has pursued its line that um, there, there are easy solutions. Essentially, essentially the, the West's gloss of Sweden's social and economic policy from about 1975 or 1980, um, the the, the received truth, the lazy received truth of what Sweden had managed to accomplish by its supposed Scandinavian model, that's informed the Guardian for the last 40 or 50 years. 
and uh, and for Mamak to actually um, claim that the male is doing something um, which is socially damaging, uh, nothing has sown division more, nothing has contributed more to the rise of a kind of blue-collar working-class reactionary conservatism than utter frustration at the success of the Guardian in dictating the news agenda and uh, and distorting uh, the BBC's attitude to stories by making commonplace the kind of lazy assumptions made by the people who work in the Guardian and associate with them in London and the South East. I noticed that uh, Andrew Neil in the launch of GB News was saying that uh, we won't be uh, making these slack assumptions. In every single contract of employment will be uh, a requirement that the person be accurate and precise and that their stories be justifiable and founded in the facts. But at the same time, we're not going to do what the uh, other broadcasters have done, which is to permit the slide into a kind of uh, lazy presumption that everything is uh, is defensible and appropriate. If, for example, it involves suggesting the UK is a bad actor, a poor internationalist, uh, an inadequate player in international order, uh, an unwilling participant in wealthy joint endeavours, um, that kind of assumption that uh, that Europeans, other Europeans, are sophisticated and well-intentioned and that the UK uniquely um, is to be judged to uh, have violated the high standards that others, without any examination whatsoever of their real behaviour, are assumed to have met. So when we cut our foreign aid budget to a level which is still way in advance of that of most other European nations, we're to be hounded for months for it, and yet they are not to be hounded for their failure to ever to commit to such a kind of level of spending. As Andrew Neil says, we're not going to do that anymore um, in his broadcast uh, channel. And uh, and for Malik to actually write a story about how the male is contaminating the public discourse uh, by lazy stereotyping, well, uh, to Kukwe. <laughs> I've never really been a huge fan of Gordon Brown, um, and he's in the uh, in the papers today talking about how the G7 should have done more to facilitate vaccine rollout in the rest of the world. Now, there's a lot of things you could say that people won't like. For example, that uh, large parts of the world have got fairly poor um, health services and, and, and ill-administered rollout um, facilities for things like vaccines, which is exactly why there are Western charities working in these countries. Um, and, and not doing enough work, of course, to even address the existing problems before COVID. Uh, and of course, the, the, a lot of countries have got far um, younger populations on average than the West. So most of the global deaths are going to be found in countries where you've got more obese people who are older. Um, and therefore, one of the reasons why you might not want to spend too much time on some countries is precisely because they're uh, young and thin. But that's the kind of thing, of course, that you can't say. Brown actually likens the attitude at the G7 to the period before the Second World War in 1938 and the failure to address anti-Semitism. Now, this rubs my fur up the wrong way, because one of the things that has happened, particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, but it's happened since the dawn of time, is to blame people for negative things that follow from commission, but never to blame people from omission, or very rarely. Um, so in other words, and of course, Teddy Roosevelt had the had the great uh, condemnation in his, his little piece about the critic. Um, the critic, who always points out where the strong man has stumbled, uh, where he could have done better. But of course, the honour lies with the person in the arena who comes up short time and time again, but at least tries. 
Um, if you had been the fire commander, the state, the um, scene commander at the Grenfell Tower, um, and you had said, I don't care what the fire evacuation plan is, I don't care what the sprinkler situation is, I want those people out of that tower right now. If you'd done that and 10 had died on the stairs, you'd have been in jail right now. You'd have served 20 years for manslaughter um, because 10 people had died because of your behaviour. You would never have been able to prove that 90 had been saved. Um, if the Belgian peacekeepers with their Canadian uh, officer in charge in Rwanda had shot 200 people and prevented a genocide of 800,000, you could never have proven the genocide would have taken place. They would have all been in jail for the rest of their lives for killing 200 people. So folk like Brown who come along and find historical examples that demonstrate how if only someone like themselves had been there, um, the whole thing would have been much better because they would have shown the kind of statesmanship that little people like, as he would claim, Boris Johnson don't. Um, let's actually think for a second about what Brown's statesmanship actually amounts to. Brown was the guy who, in 2008, convinced us that rich people had to have the money from poor people or otherwise uh, the world would be in a, in a, in a bad place. So the, the banks were, uh, in some cases, bankrupt, but not all of them, of course, because a whole lot of interbank inter lending means that some banks, like Barclays or HSBC, have to be fine, while others are in big trouble. Um, so Brown convinces us. I mean, it's, it's, there's a famous saying in politics, which is, if you're explaining, you're losing. Okay? If you're explaining, you're losing. Now, there's a word called a bond. Now, a bond could be a savings account, where you put your money in the bank, it's just a deposit, and you'll get paid interest for a period of time. Or a bond could be a corporate bond. It could be a loan straight to a company. Because that same word is used in two different senses, you can take all of the money from poor people and give it to rich people. Because as soon as you try to explain the difference between those two things, folk aren't interested. They just want the problem to go away. They want the bad thing to no longer be troubling their mind. They, they can't be bothered with it. So in 2007-2008, when the banks were in freefall, nobody was bothered about the difference between a, a bond where a rich person had put 10 million into a, what are called junior and senior debt, the fundamental investment in the bank's basic structure. No one was bothered about the difference between that and somebody having £50,000 in their savings account for the retirement, because those were both bonds. No, they weren't. The deposits were guaranteed. The deposits would always have been guaranteed. But what we did was we took a hold of the public money and we bailed out shareholders and we bailed out the investors and the fundamental um, capital of the banks. And we also made a market um, in the uh, various debts of the banks. Uh, we made a market. Right now, during this COVID crisis, we've got the Bank of England owning um, uh, debt from, I think, airlines and similar organisations. <laughs> we have just really, really crossed the line. Now, someone said that the, the obvious thing, which is planes fly with new owners. To that, I would like to add, not only do planes fly with new owners, they fly better with new owners having gone through receivership because the new owners aren't afflicted with all the debts that previously hamstrung the company. Bank, banks provide a vital function. The economy can't function without banks. But the banking function and the fact that the bank is owned by those who previously owned it are two different things. So if you have a bank which has gone through a process of administration and all the rich people have lost their money and the bank has then been recapitalised by its new owners who bought it for thruppence from the administrators, that bank is in a much, much, much better position to facilitate the real economy 
than the other bank would have been with all those extend and pretend legacy debts. But Gordon Brown guaranteed us that inefficient future. He guaranteed us banks that were crippled with bad debt. He guaranteed us the kind of downturn that we've had for uh, the entire period since, the less good world. So Gordon Brown tells us that we haven't done enough uh, in the G7 in order to uh, to um, facilitate a, a vaccination of, of the entire world, as he says, you know, no one's safe until everyone is safe. Well, if we try to actually do what he suggests, which is to chase um, everybody in a poor country and ensure they have two doses of a vaccine, how does that square with the delay, which I presume he supports, he certainly hasn't spoken against, of four weeks in the UK, because we've got a new Delta variant and somebody might die because of it, and the vaccine isn't quite as effective as it might be um, for the original variant. Because it, it, it seems to me that um, the uh, the spread of the, the, the virus through the third world, fairly unchecked, and it has happened already, it's too, and in some ways we're too late to chase the first wave, the spread of the virus through the third world has effectively created antibodies throughout the third world in large percentages. Indeed, in percentages greater than were said to provide herd immunity at the start. Because this thing is not particularly uh, transmissible, and because it's particularly uh, low in transmission potential in places which are hot and humid, which is exactly why Southeast Asia has had a, a pretty good result. Because we've had this for 14 months now, the antibody status of loads of people in poorer parts of the world is going to be uh, as good as it will ever be um, if, we're, if we're prepared to panic about future variants. Because catching the earlier versions of COVID is going to provide antibodies. Getting inoculated with the present vaccines is going to provide antibodies. The trouble is that we're panicking now in the West about variations. Well, what do we plan to do? Panic on behalf of the whole of the world on the basis of variations on an indefinite timetable. So the next time some uh, variant appears, not only are we going to commit ourselves to shutting the UK for four weeks or four months or however long it takes, we're going to commit ourselves to vaccinating the entire world in order to prevent them too suffering to some increased but modest degree from that new variant. So we've got Gordon Brown, as I say, uh, the standing critic, the man who points out where the strong man uh, has stumbled. Um, and he, he cites as evidence for his case that we've got people, one million, losing their life every three months from COVID. OK, let's suppose that continued for a whole year and they gave us four million. I worked it out. Um, that's essentially 0.057% um, um, of the global population. Now, we're not providing basic things for folk in the third world that would save their lives. Um, things like, for example, um, inoculations against um, routine diseases. We've not spent anything like the money we should have spent on things like, for example, a vaccine for malaria, although there seems to be progress in that recently. So if we look um, at what we actually do before COVID to try and help people in, di in dire straits, it's hee-haw. It's very, very little. And if we're looking to spend a fortune trying to actually make their lives better, then it seems to me that um, saving 0.057% um, of the uh, of the population when so many die for the want of clean water uh, might not be the most cost-effective spend. The Guardian's Tom Cabassi has got a similar downer on the UK um, and uh, and not only of course compared to other countries but compared to our, uh, our history. So he, uh, he criticises the Atlantic Charter, the new Atlantic Charter that Boris Johnson seems to have taught with Joe Biden into declaring and compares it unfavourably to the, the earlier charter. 
um, between the, the wartime leaders. Now, it strikes me as pretty obvious that one of the reasons why our ambitions um, are less in, in terms of winning arguments than they once were is precisely because the arguments have been won. Francis Fukuyama wrote a book um, some years ago, American Federal Civil Servant, and became an academic. I think, from memory, one of these guys that became an academic on a ridiculous salary and then proved to be a huge legacy cost in the university because, you know, they, they, when you're a big name at one moment in time, they assume you're going to be equally attractive to international students who pay high fees forever. And I think they, I think he's one of the guys that they put on a big salary. Um, and then, uh, of course, as he starts to fade from, from public view, you end, up, you end up paying his wages for decades. But anyway, Fukuyama wrote a, a well-received book about... Um, essentially the end of ideology, how the West was best and had won all the arguments. And uh, and one of the reasons why there's less to argue about when it comes to things like trade um, and the right of peoples to self-determine uh, politically and the illegitimacy of the use of aggressive force, um, the arguments are over. So the, the reason why summits like the G7 um, and, and others, discussions in the UN, the reason why they're, they're less um, dramatic and, uh, and less polarising it's precisely because um, a Chinese aggression in places like the Spratly Islands, no one thinks it's right. Um, Russia sending assassins around the world um, is just the kind of thing that's um, not only heinous and, uh, and a, a good grounds, a good basis for tightening the screw on, uh, on sanctions and wrecking their economy a little further until eventually um, they either uh, implode and you get another Russian revolution or they become uh, no longer a threat to the West because they've declined so far for so long that they, uh, they're they not only upper voter with missiles, they're upper voter without missiles. Um, but uh, but anyway, he um, Kabasi, as I say, um, is not impressed. Uh, the only thing that pleases him is the agreement on taxation, the corporate tax, 15%, um, that the developed world is going to try and impose on the less developed world. And as I've pointed out before, what that does then is it prevents tax competition for places that are less attractive in other ways. In other words, if you had to pay 15% tax, regardless of where you are, you don't go somewhere where you're getting less for your money. The, uh, there's a, a nomad capitalist, I think he calls himself, which and he says, go where you're best treated. So he's got a YouTube channel, which is all about acquiring passports and permanent residence in places where your dollar goes a long way. If you're a company and you know you're going to face 15%, then a poor country with bad infrastructure and bad um, internet and uh, and an unskilled workforce and a million one other things can no longer compete on a low corporate tax rate. So what this essentially is, is a cartel of developed nations who wish to exclude from global competition for capital people who don't have good infrastructure and good um, educated populations. That's partly what this is about. It's also about um, a kind of sleight of hand when it comes to taxation. One way to think about workers is that they lease the plant machinery from the investor. Um, so if you, if you imagine, suppose for the sake of argument, you've got a shoplifting problem um, in, a, in a supermarket in a deprived area. Do you think that the company continually makes lower profits or do you think they pass it on in higher prices to the consumers? And of course the answer is they pass it on. Um, so costs of being in business, as long as they're the same for every participant in the business, don't worry people in business, as long as you can pass them on. So if you've got a cost of being in business, for example, you have to pay the state a certain amount of money, and it doesn't matter whether it's France, Germany, Britain, or whatever, you're going to have to pay the state, whichever state you're located in. 
then all you do is pass it on in higher prices. So you're not actually bothered about costs of being in business as long as they're the same for everybody. Uh, so the, the, the business of a, a higher corporation tax um, really means that people who own shares, and most of the people who own shares are ordinary folk who are using the investment to fund their retirement. What this involves, this corporate tax rate, is a sleight of hand where workers are now going to pay um, reduced taxation during their lives to fund public services because it's coming out of their pension funds, their 401ks in the case of America, or their self-invested personal pensions in the case of the UK, because all taxes are paid by people. So, as I say, he doesn't seem to understand that. Um, and he also um, he accuses the, the, the G7 of being parochial, without ever considering for one moment that the G7 and the rise of Trump in 2016 um, and the rise of Le Pen in, in, in France right now and the rise of people like Orban in the, in the so-called Visegrad group in Eastern Europe, this represents, these people are responsive. You know, the, the reason why the UK gives a small percentage of total GDP to the rest of the world and keeps the rest for ourselves, either in the form of good public services or private sector consumption, despite the fact that we won this because we were the first industrial nation and none of us did anything to deserve to be born into the first industrial nation. The reason why we do this is precisely because we are parochial. Uh, I always repeat at this point the old story of the Omelis, the people who leave Omelis, the ones who can't stand the fact that the town's success and prosperity depends on one lonely child being kept in a basement. Some can't stand that thought, so they're the ones who leave Omelis. Most people don't leave Omelis. They're, they're, they're precisely the reason why uh, we have to have uh, border controls. I was walking down Victoria Road in Glasgow and I, I saw a cafe that had its window smashed. Um, Govan Hill is a is a very multicultural area and uh, one of the things that said on the, the boards uh, that replaced the broken window was no border controls. But of course the reason why we can afford to pay two and a half, three thousand pounds a month in tax credits and, and provide vast public services for people who are lucky enough to be in the UK is precisely because not anybody anywhere, not just anybody from anywhere in the world can choose to locate themselves in the UK. If they did, if they could, we wouldn't be able to help those who are currently here. So Kabasi, um, as I say, has a pop at both the UK uh, and the wider developed world for its, uh, for its lack of ambition. Um, and, uh, and in part, as I say, that's predicated in a belief that there are still arguments to be won. They aren't. Um, Fukuyama was right. We've still got um, the, the, the problem of no dragons but too many snakes. So we've still got a problem of um, people like ISIS um, who are essentially looking to take us back to the 14th century or earlier. Um, and then we've also got the problem of thugs, um, like, for example, the Russian Federation um, or uh, the Chinese leadership under Xi. So we've got these problems. But no, I, I, I doubt very much whether um, the Chinese leadership think they're right in some of the things they do um, in the South China Sea. Um, when the Americans do freedom of navigation exercises and sail right through uh, Chinese exclusion zones and dare them uh, to open fire and, and, pr and provoke a shooting war. The reason why the Americans do this is because they feel fairly safe, because they know not only do the Chinese not think they're, in, not think they're going to be the victor in a, in a conflict at this stage, but they also don't think they're in the right. Um, and as I say, the, uh, uh, the thing that none of us can face is that the politicians in the G7 are parochial in their ambitions precisely because all of the low-hanging fruit in the sense of ideolo ideological wins. We've already persuaded 
the Vietnamese and the Chinese and everybody else that free enterprise and free trade promote global prosperity. That's low-hanging fruit. That's an argument that you can win. That's a, not a non-zero-sum game. When it comes to grabbing fishing waters or mineral exploration from the Philippines or Vietnam, uh, that's a zero-sum game. And, uh, and nobody thinks that thugs are in the right. Uh, so our politicians are parochial uh, precisely because um, they're responsive to us and we're parochial. Let's uh, finish with Leslie Riddick. I don't mean literally. Let's finish with Leslie Riddick, but that would be uh, that would be pleasant if it was possible. Um, Leslie Riddick, like the uh, the Guardian readers, the Guardian writers rather, um, Leslie Riddick dislikes Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, uh, and the UK as a political structure, if not as a people. Um, if you think the the UK defines a people. Emmanuel Macron, of course, doesn't think that the UK exists. Um, he thinks that Northern Ireland is part of Ireland. Either that or you think that the British have uh, manufactured a diplomatic row for political purposes. I can't quite decide which uh, which story I prefer. But anyway, Leslie Riddiff has chipped in and said that Boris Johnson is going to have to back down in the Northern Ireland Protocol. We're going to have to accept that uh, Scottish sausages going to Northern Ireland are going to have to be subject to the kind of checks that you would normally expect from a... Um, a Bolivian submarine coming into the Florida Keys. So the uh, the argument amounts to the UK has agreed to these checks and therefore we'll have to do it. Now, of course, there's a few things we should point out. We agreed under coercion. Uh, the European Union tried to use Northern Ireland to prevent the UK leaving uh, the European Union at all. And indeed, they were caught, they were recorded talking about how they were going to use uh, Northern Ireland. We should not forget that back in January, uh, the European Union actually triggered uh, the emergency provisions in the agreement and tried to prevent the movement of, uh, of pharmaceuticals from the Republic of Ireland into Northern Ireland, into the UK, and back down within hours when they saw the reaction, not just from the UK, but from Dublin. So the, the, the bad faith actors in this, uh, I think any fair-minded person from outside uh, would judge are the, are the EU, not the UK. And uh, it's worth thinking about exactly what the problem is. The problem is basically that um, if something leaves Scotland, it could end up in the Republic of Ireland when it should have un undergone either um, tariffs or checks that might not be needed um, were it moving within Scotland. So if you're, if you're sending something into Northern Ireland, it will move easily into the Republic is the argument. Um, in a way that it couldn't move easily from Dover into France and therefore checks have to take place somewhere because this is an import into the European Union. Okay, let's stop and think of this for a minute. How many sausages do you think you could actually sell on a steady basis into the Republic of Ireland without getting caught? How high would the criminal penalties have to be in both the UK and in the Republic of Ireland in order to prevent somebody doing that? when ready substitutes were available bought internally within Ireland. In other words, what possible motive could someone have for um, breaking a law and buying something from Scotland um, or from Northern Ireland if it bounced through Northern Ireland? But what possible motive could someone have for, for buying something like that? Northern Ireland is a public sector dominated economy. It has got a few high value 
um, industries and electronics and things like that and they're easy to track um, sales of, of things costing millions are easy to track across the border that's not where the problem lies the problem lies with uh, fairly low value um, things that are sold in corner shops like sausages for example which might have additional requirements on them um, there are things that could be sold frozen into the EU but can't be sold um, uh, fresh and so on phytosanitary checks uh, as they call them for certain animal exports uh, and, and meat exports. So fair enough, fair enough. The EU has got its standards. If the British want to deviate from those standards then there have to be checks when things move into the EU. Uh, that makes sense. But does the way that you prevent things moving into the EU through the Republic of Ireland make sense? Um, if you insist, for example, that you can't have trusted trader schemes that remove the need um, to drive uh, Scottish producers daft because if, if something has been sold by a Scottish producer to a, a Northern Ireland retailer and that Northern Ireland retailer is a trusted trader and they'll be known to sell things um, into the Northern Ireland market um, and uh, and not try to bring things in, uh, into the Republic um, if, if that's if that's a way of going on why wouldn't it be the way that you would favour why wouldn't it be the way that the European Union would have favoured um, and the answer, of course, is that right from the get-go, they were trying to leverage Northern Ireland. They were trying to use it as a way to try and frustrate the Brexit process. They've always sought to have the most difficult um, solution apply, the one that's most likely to cause frustration on the part of British producers exporting into Northern Ireland, the one that's most likely um, to cause frustration in Northern Ireland when retailers kind of get supplies because people in the, in the UK mainland decide that it's more trouble than it's worth. So there were ways of going about um, facilitating Northern Ireland that weren't chosen. And they weren't chosen because right from the get-go, the European Union was concerned not with facilitating the integrity of a loyal member state that had more than paid its way for more than 40 years. We were exercising a treaty right when we left the European Union. Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, I think I'm right in saying, is a treaty right. Um, so it was precisely there so that members could choose to exit. And yet, they acted in bad faith and tried to prevent our exit. And the reason why we've got problems in Northern Ireland right now is precisely because Northern Ireland was there as one of their chosen tools in order to try and prevent uh, our exit altogether. So we shouldn't think that the present problems in Northern Ireland are uh, inevitable. They're inevitable given the EU strategy from the get-go, which was to prevent us leaving altogether.